Welcome to the 11th case conference in the 2016-2017 CCV MJHS Palliative Care in the Patient-Centered Medical Home Case Conference Series. My name is Dr. Mike Zablo. I'm an attending physician in the Division of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine at New York Presbyterian Brooklyn Methodist Hospital. I'm here today to talk with everyone about a 75-year-old male with a history of congestive heart failure, COPD, chronic kidney disease, and frequent falls after a medication change. I have no financial arrangements or affiliations with any commercial entities whose products, research, or services may be discussed during this webinar. What I hope to go over with everyone is a review of how changes in elderly physiology can affect drug metabolism, explore ways to reduce polypharmacy, and evaluate ways to identify and reduce falls in our elderly population. So I'm going to try and do this webinar maybe a little differently than most. We're all going to presume that our patient whose name is Frank is someone who we've known for a number of years. And as such, before he even comes to see us, we generally know his past medical history. So I'll start by going over that. He has a history of chronic systolic congestive heart failure with an ejection fraction of 40% that's been stable for the past year. And he follows regularly with a cardiologist. He has COPD. He's never been intubated. His most recent exacerbation of COPD was last fall, thought to be due to a viral bronchitis. He uses a rescue inhaler one to two times a week. And he is a former smoker, so a low-dose screening CT was performed six months ago that was negative for any malignancy. He has a history of chronic kidney disease. His baseline is of stage three, and there's been no worsening over the past year. He has a history of benign prostatic hypertrophy and also coronary artery disease. He had a myocardial infarction approximately six years ago, which resulted in a drug-eluting stent being placed to the left anterior descending artery. He's also up to date on all of his vaccinations, which includes the pneumococcal and the zoster vaccination. His social history, as I said before, he is a former smoker quit smoking about five years ago. This was initiated by his uh, myocardial infarction. And he has a total of about a 55-pack year history of smoking. He does still occasionally ingest alcohol, having one to two drinks about once a week. He denies any illicit drug use. He's in a monogamous relationship with his wife of 50 years, and he's a retired car salesman. He does his best to try and stay healthy. When he exercises, he walks for about 30 minutes four times a week, and also goes swimming at his local gym once a week. His family history, his mother passed away at age 87 due to complications from a stroke. His father passed at age 80 due to pancreatic cancer. His brother is still alive at age 71 and is undergoing treatment for prostate cancer. Now here we have our patient's medications. We have lisinopril, 10 milligrams daily, and lodipine, 10 milligrams daily, Metopol tartrate, 50 milligrams twice a day. Aspirin, 81 milligrams daily. Clopidogrel, 75 milligrams daily. Furosemide, 40 milligrams daily. Spironolactone, 25 milligrams daily. Atorvastatin, 40 milligrams at bedtime. And Tamsulosin, uh, 0.4 milligrams, also once a day. He takes fluticasone furate combination with valenteral inhalation powder, the 100 microgram, 25 microgram uh, combination, one inhalation once a day for a COPD. 
He also has an albuterol nebulizer or meter dose inhaler, depending on where he is when he starts to feel short of breath. And he uses this as needed, um, as we said before, about one to two times per week. He does also take omeprazole, 40 milligrams daily. He takes a fiber gummy, a multivitamin, calcium supplementation, and also uses an over-the-counter laxative as needed for occasional constipation. So right away, let's ask everybody a question. How many medications are considered polypharmacy in a patient of any age? Is it 5, 10, 15, or 20? And the correct answer here is 5. Um, it seems being a hospital-based physician, as I usually am, almost unrealistic to see a patient with less than five medications. A study performed in two, that reviewed medications of patients between the ages of 65 and 85 in 2010 showed that 87% of elderly patients took at least one medication. 36% of those had five or more medications. So 36% of elderly patients have polypharmacy. Now, if we expanded this to include nursing home patients, because the numbers I just gave you were for community-dwelling older adults. In a nursing home, the average number of medications is 14 medications a day. What was really scary from this study was that approximately one-third of these medications had the potential to worsen or exacerbate any geriatric syndrome that might be present. So now this is actually a medication box from, well, she's from, from my aunt. Um, you see here she has all of her medications laid out and she keeps them in a box uh, so that they're all together at one time. She's able to remember to take them when needed. What I have here is a nice little pill box uh, that, had, that I broke up by Frank's medications. Now you see here he's pretty heavy in the morning medications with only one in the evening and one at bedtime. But even so here, there's 12 medications that he needs to take in the morning and that's pretty significant. So now to get into our case, about two weeks ago, over a weekend, Frank began to feel short of breath with a mild cough and an increase in sputum production. He did not have a fever, but rightfully so became concerned that he might be having a COPD exacerbation and decided to go see his local urgent care center. While there, he had a chest x-ray, which he reports had no abnormalities. At the urgent care center, he was prescribed a short course of oral steroids and antibiotics and released home. Now, after his antibiotics and steroids completed, he noted that he had swelling of his legs and returned to the urgent care center. Now, here what they did is they increased his dose of furosemide from 40 milligrams once a day to 40 milligrams twice a day. During this time, he did not change his diet, did not change his fluid intake. So now, since increasing the furosemide, he reports that he's had swelling in his legs, has improved, although not completely resolved. What's pretty alarming, though, is that he says that he's now starting to have some dizzy spells when he gets out of bed or get out of a chair, and these usually resolve within a few moments. But now, over the past couple of days, past four days, this dizziness has worsened uh, significantly when he stands. He's actually fallen three times. Uh, thankfully, each time he's fallen, he's been back into bed or into a chair that he was sitting in, and he denies striking his head or having any other injury. He says that when he lays down or sits down, his dizziness pretty, resolves pretty quickly. He denies any other injuries, and he comes to the office today, today for the evaluation of this new dizziness and falling. When we review Frank's medications, 
we find that he's still taking his furosemide twice a day. When asked, he says he doesn't remember if or when the urgent care center said to stop taking the uh, furosemide twice a day. So at this point, let me ask another question. What is Cascade prescribing? Is it prescribing more medications than are needed? Is it increasing the dose of a medication due to natural progression of the disease? Is it increasing the dose of the medication because it was not correctly dosed to begin with? Is it increasing the number of medications needed to treat a condition? Or is it prescribing a medication to treat the side effects of a different medication? Well, seeing the story I just gave you guys, you can probably figure out that Cascade prescribing is prescribing a medication to treat the side effects of a different medication. Now, I do want to bring up one example when Cascade prescribing is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's absolutely something that we want to keep an eye on. This example is actually in the hospice world, where we have very many patients who are started on opioids for um, cancer-related pain. But because of the opioids, of all the different side effects that opioids can have, myoclonus, itching, nausea, vomiting, lethargy, constipation is the one side effect that really doesn't go away. Your body never becomes tolerant to it. So as a result, hospice physicians will prescribe a bowel regimen to treat the side effects of the opioid regimen. This is essentially cascade prescribing, but a necessary cascade. So now going back to our patient on the review assistance, he is feeling weak, but no fevers or chills and no appetite loss. He has no back pain or no neck pain. He has mild shortness of breath, a mild cough, and some yellowish sputum production. And he reports this is he's almost back to his baseline. He has no chest pain, no palpitations, and improved swelling of his legs. He denies any nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or constipation. He has no abdominal pain, although he does complain of a dry mouth. He has no confusion, numbness, or tingling, no headache, but these dizzy spells that we've described uh, earlier on. He denies any anxiety and denies having any depression. Any other uh, issue in the review systems was essentially negative. So now to review Frank's vital signs, he has a height of 5 feet 10 inches and a weight of 165 pounds. This corresponds to a BMI of 23.7. When, when laying down, his blood pressure is 126 over 82 with a pulse of 74. When sitting, we start to see a decrease. His Blood pressure drops to 118 over 80 with a pulse of 80. Then when he stands, we start to see real significance. We see a blood pressure of 102 over 70 with a pulse of 88. And within a minute of standing, he begins to feel somewhat dizzy. His point of care glucose at this time was 95. So on physical exam, he has a normal cephalic atraumatic head with equal ocular muscles in, intact and his pupils are equal, round, and reactive to light. He has dry oral mucosa. His heart exam, there's a regular rate and rhythm, but no murmur, and we do find some trace edema of the feet and ankles. We have a slight expiratory wheeze on auscultation of the lungs, but no wonkai and no crackles. His abdomen is soft, non-tender, non-distended, with normal bowel sounds. In musculoskeletal exam, we do see mild sarcopenia, but no joint crepitus. On my last webinar, we talked a lot about a time get up and go test. Um, when we tried to do this for this patient, because of his dizziness, we had to stop. 
it would not be safe to have a gentleman who's dizzy trying to walk. On his integumentary exam, his skin had bad, poor perder, so there was tenting of his skin when pinched. He's alert, he's oriented, there's no focal deficits. He has a normal affect with a mini mental status exam of 29 on 30. Here we have some labs done in the office. We see a sodium of 147 and a potassium of 4, chloride of 101 and a bicarb of 26. His B1 is 70, his creatinine is 2.8 with a glucose of 95. The CBC and the COAG profile are unremarkable. Now, calculating here, his GFR is approximately 19. His baseline, known to us, is 45, showing acute renal failure. His pro-BMP is 124, so there's no, heart no exacerbation of his heart failure. AST is 9, ALT is 12, and his albumin is 3.2. So now, I want to take a second to ask a few more questions. Now, what are some of the differences in elderly physiology that can affect drug metabolism? And here I'd like to focus on just three systems, the hepatic system, the renal system, and the overall GI system. In the hepatic system, we'll see the hepatic blood flow become decreased. The size of the liver becomes decreased, and the hepatic enzymes are also decreased. They're, now, this all affects me potentially metabolism of medications or their metabolites. <clears throat> There's also decreased circulating albumin. This can affect the volume of distribution and also um, the location of our medications. When we switch to renal function, it's generally accepted that the glomular filtration rate decreases with age. Now, while we used to think this was simply due to the effects of age, newer research is now starting to show otherwise. It's the long-term effects of comorbidities such as diabetes or hypertension that cause the decrease in the GFR, less likely than the age is causing a decrease in GFR. Moving on to the gastric system, you'll see an increased gastric pH so it's more alkaline. We also see very many elderly patients who are inappropriately prescribed proton pump inhibitors, which also makes the uh, stomach more alkaline. You're going to see delayed gastric emptying and also uh, overall a slower GI motility. Again, all this affecting the metabolism and the absorption of medications. Here's a nice little chart for people who might be more visual learners for other changes to elderly physiology all of which, again, affect the volume of distribution, is total body fat. This will be increased up to 35% in some elderly patients. When you're dealing with transdermal medications, this can be somewhat important. Plasma volume is decreased by 8%. This is why we see a blue square, which is, represents uh, the elderly 65 or older. Overall, again, remember, all patients are different, versus the green square, which would be that of a 20-year-old. So you see when the plasma volumes decrease by 8%, we see a smaller blue square. For total body water, again, a smaller blue square. And a significantly smaller square when we're dealing with extracellular body fluid. To change gears just for a second, let's talk about our risk of falls. Now, I talked about this in my last webinar, and as I alluded to before, we talked about the get-up-and-go test. This is a good test to perform in your uh, office, very quick taking 15 to 20 seconds, that can really give you an idea if someone's at high risk for falls. For those of you who may not have been there or are more interested in what the uh, get-up-and-go test looks like, 
you can do a simple internet search and there'll be plenty of videos that show uh, examples on how to do um, the time to get up and go test. So other signs on physical exam that can help you identify patients who are at risk of falls, I found a nice little mnemonic. It's actually I hate falling. The I stands for inflammation of the joints or deformity. For instance, and probably most commonly, osteoarthritis. You'll see those big, heavy, bony joints. If you see a patient with hypotension, including orthostatic hypotension such as Frank, this is a high risk of falls. Any patient with auditory or visual abnormalities, any patient with tremor, for instance, from Parkinson's disease, this can cause an increased risk of falls. If we have um, foot problems, any cardiac problems, and for the sake of the mnemonic, it's abbreviated as A for arrhythmias. Any arrhythmia, heart block, or valvular disease increases the risk of falls. Any leg length discrepancy or lack of conditioning, such as a frail patient, they are at high risk for falls. There's also any illness, nutrition problem, and pretty obviously gait problems increase the risk of falls in our patients. So now, what are some of the drugs that are known to increase risk of falls in the elderly? Here we have, and this is just a small sample, tricyclic antidepressants, antihypertensive medications, cardiac medications, corticosteroids, NSAIDs. All of these can cause dizziness or, well, in the case of antihypertensives, hypotension, increasing the risk of falls. Anticholinergic medicines increase the risk of delirium, which of course increases the risk of falls. Any hypoglycemic agent, of course, can, over, can overreact in the elderly patient or have a longer mechanism of action uh, in the elderly, which of course increases the risk of, of hypoglycemia and of course then risk of falls. So what exactly can be done to reduce the risk of falls in the elderly? We can reduce environmental hazards, such as floor transitions. Um, here, you'll see often steps in between rooms of the patient's uh, living arrangements. You might see rugs that are not as tight as they used to be, so they're lift up, and it makes a risk of falls. Any area rug can increase the risk of falls because of the edge, and of course, wires running across the floor. The reason this is because elderly people may not be lifting their legs as, as high as you or I might, so therefore why they're at a high risk of falls. We can also improve home supports. Um, shower bars or shower chairs are very appropriate to help reduce the risk of falls, of course, in the bathroom where there is a, a slippery surface on the floor. We can do medication modification, so to try and reduce some of the medications here. For anyone who wants a more extensive list of medications that could increase the risk of falls or should not be used in the elderly altogether, or at very least used with caution, we can look, you can check out the Beers criteria or the Beers list. This is published by the American Geriatric Society, and it's a list of medications and medication families that should try to be avoided in the elderly for a number of different reasons. If the patient is still pretty mobile, we can look into physical therapy for gait and balance training. We can also involve family member support. When we encourage patients to ask for help when they try and have them try and realize their mutability, I find that this is sometimes one of the hardest things to do. 
reason being is that very many of my geriatric patients are matriarchs and patriarchs of their family. They're the ones people go to to get help, and it's very hard for them to accept their new role as the person asking and receiving help um, instead of giving it. It's a very difficult thing for some people to accept. So near the end of our exam with Frank, he confides in us that he's feeling somewhat overwhelmed taking his medications as prescribed. He feels as if he's taking too many medications all at once. As I showed you guys earlier, he's taking 12 medications in the morning. He's tried spacing these morning medications throughout the day, but then feels as if he's taking medications all day long and lives his life. He asks if he can decrease the number of medications that he takes. So what are some instances when deprescribing should be considered? We can show signs if a patient is showing signs of having adverse drug effects. For here, you can kind of consider the increased Lasix dose that he was taking an adverse side effect. If a patient is showing signs of end-stage disease, it's sometimes then pertinent to deprescribe certain medications. One example that I see very, very frequently is anti-dementia meds in people who have end-stage dementia. Uh, for someone who has a fast 7 dementia, anti-dementia medications such as dimepazole or nemenda, there's really no utility to them except for increasing aspiration risk. Medications such as dimepazole have been shown to delay nursing home placement, but in the patient who has fast 7 dementia, they are likely already in a nursing home or in a living situation where they're not worried about going into a nursing home. At that point, there's very little utility to this medication. If we're using medications longer for their intended use, this is an instance in which we should consider deprescribing. Uh, some examples are proton pump inhibitors and bisphosphonates. One common thing I see is that a patient is admitted to the hospital. For instance, Frank had a a COPD exacerbation due to a viral bronchitis. He might have been started on a proton pump inhibitor prophylactically due to steroids, and then that proton pump inhibitor was then just simply continued visit after visit after visit. If a medication is not being taken as directed, that's another signal that we should consider stopping the medication. Obviously, if we're not taking the medication as directed, we're not seeing the full effect. And if the patient is living their life acceptably without the full effect of the medication, it might not be necessary to have at all. Now, what are some barriers to deprescribing? One very common one is a patient or family's reluctance to change medications or to stop medications that they've been on for so long. A good example is, is the dinepazil. One way to avoid is having time to sit down with families and talk with them about your reasoning for wanting to stop or taper off a medication. When, as physicians, we're forced to see increased volume in order to make ends meet, this becomes very, very difficult and sometimes just easier to give in to a family or to continue prescribing a medication so that you can move on to the six people waiting in your waiting room. One thing I picked up from one of my partners over at New York Presbyterian Brooklyn Methodist Hospital is an interesting way to try and prevent uh, polypharmacy that we do with our medical students. As we see here, I have my medication pill box. And if you guys take very closely, you can tell those probably aren't medications in here. These are little chocolate candies. What my partner will do is that she will have her medical student choose her patient. 
Now, normally we try and point them in the direction of one of our nursing home patients because as you saw, as I showed you earlier, these guys are taking 14 or more medications a day. She'll then take the pill box, fill it with candies, and set the alarm on their med student's phone for when they're supposed to take these medications. By doing that, we're giving the med student an idea of what it's like to be a slave to a pillbox, potentially. And sometimes we see a real effect with our med students where when they would normally recommend five different medications to treat one disease, you'll then see them find one medication to treat five diseases. So the Journal of the American Medical Association did publish a list uh, or an algorithm, excuse me, on how to deprescribe. Does them, and the way it works is you want to ask four questions about the medication. Does the medication have a benefit? Do the risks of taking this medication outweigh the benefit? Is, there, is the medication treating a non-existent symptom? And or is this a preventative medication that's giving a benefit that the patient's not going to live long enough to realize? If so, will there be withdrawal or disease recurrence by taking away this medication? If there could be withdrawal or disease recurrence, you can taper off the medication. If there's not going to be any withdrawal symptoms, might as well just go ahead and stop it. So now we'll do this by looking at Frank's medications. And the first step is that does the medication have a benefit? Here I'd like to focus on the multivitamin and the calcium. Frank does not have osteoporosis, so to give him calcium plus vitamin D may not be necessary. You may want to consider just straight vitamin D for Frank because we have shown that a low vitamin D level is associated with a higher risk of falls. A multivitamin also probably having no benefit for Frank. To discontinue those two medications is probably appropriate. Now, do the risks of the medication outweigh the benefits? Here, let's look at the furosemide. You see here I have it as being taken twice a day. If we were to stop the furosemide altogether, you'd probably see a disease recurrence of his relatively stable congestive heart failure. This being said, a taper back to his home dose, or just moving him back to his home dose of 40 milligrams a day, is probably appropriate. Is this medication treating non-existent symptoms? Here, let's take a look at his tamsulosin and his omeprazole. The omeprazole medication, like I kind of alluded to before, may have been started earlier on during a hospitalization than simply continued. Without having any symptoms of acid reflux, it might be a good idea to take off this medication. Furthermore, with the tamsulosin, he's not complained of urinary frequency, urinary hesitancy, or difficulty urinating. So therefore, this is another medication that it might be a good idea to stop. Now, is this a preventative medication where the benefit will not be realized? Here, I want to look at his cardiac medications. Of course, the Lipitor is something to consider discontinuing. And I don't just mean Lipitor, but any statin could be something worth considering discontinuing. His dual antiplatelet therapy, he had a stent placed six years ago. It may be appropriate, especially if the pills are burden is too high, to consider discontinuing the medication. And also the metropolal tartrate, possibly consider switching to metropolal succinate. However, with these cardiac medications, I personally would be a little weary and would probably refer Frank over to his cardiologist. So that being said, after reviewing our medications with Frank, 
it was decided to stop his tansilosin, his omeprazole, his calcium, and his multivitamin. We then also decreased his furosemide back to the 40 milligrams daily. That's now five medications I've been able to take away from Frank throughout the day. He agreed to discuss deprescribing his cardiac medications, including the dual antiplatelet therapy with his cardiologist, and he would talk with him about his next visit. When Frank comes back to see you in two weeks, his labs show renal function returning to baseline. That he has no complaints of acid reflux, frequent or difficulty urinating, and he spoke with his cardiologist about deprescribing some of his cardiac medications, but they agreed to continue them, seeing as he's tolerating them well. Ultimately, Frank's dizzy spells have stopped, and his SOAP has falls. So at this point, I'd like to see if there's any questions. We only have about a minute left, but if there's any questions, I'd love to be able to answer them. All right, we got a quick question popping up here. Is Frank Hospice eligible? Well, just because we're deprescribing does not necessarily mean that Frank is hospice eligible. His CHF is well controlled, his COPD is well controlled, his CKD is returning to its baseline. And while these three, these three conditions together could potentially eventually cause him to become hospice eligible, seeing as he's not symptomatic and not having frequent hospitalizations, I don't necessarily think that hospice is appropriate at this point. All right, it looks like we're just about out of time. I want to take a quick second because this is the last case conference before the end of the academic year to congratulate all the residents uh, who have been watching and wish them luck in their future endeavors. The next webinar is going to be Assessment and Management of Fatigue in the Seriously Ill, presented by Dr. Paul Massage, a physician educator at MJHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care, which will be on Wednesday, June 28, 2017 at 12.30 p.m. I'd like to remind everyone to please complete the evaluations so that at MJHS we can provide uh, webinars and other case conferences that are more pertinent to your practice and more beneficial to you. Attendees will all receive an email with instructions later today on how to receive CME credit for this webinar. Again, thanks for watching and congratulations to the graduating class.